Hello, everyone. Welcome to Deep Focus. I'm here again with Nick, my co-host. How's it going? Pretty good, man. Yeah. Uh, and today we are going to be talking about, I believe, one of your favorite movies by one of your favorite filmmakers, a yep. filmmaker that you uh, made me start watching, and he's fantastic. <laughs> and why don't you take it from there? Uh, yeah. So this is uh, The Wind Rises by Hayao Miyazaki. And um, yeah, no, uh, before we actually go off on this, um, I wanted to kind of talk about... Uh, so actually, we we were gonna watch Spirited Away, and um, Quaid, you actually called me right, and we had this really really good conversation um, yeah. about you know death and purpose, and I said, you know what, we better watch The Wind Rises instead. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, let's just get the spoiler warning out of the way. If you uh, haven't seen this film, um, or if you just want to you know keep up with what we're talking about, uh. Go watch it. Uh, we're not going to be uh, worrying about spoilers at all. Yeah. So, cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. What did you think? I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I haven't been disappointed by him at all. You know, I've seen three movies of his and each mm. one's blown me away. Like, even more so than the last one. You know, like, right. Princess Mononoke was a great, really entertaining film, you know, but it maybe mm. didn't get to me on such a personal level. And then you had right. Kiki's Delivery Service. And, you know, I've had that experience. You've had that experience. And so that got to me on a personal level. Right. And this was fantastic. Um, I got to say, I think the message is a slight bit more uh, cryptic than something like Kiki's Delivery Service. You know, um, I think that's actually the case with all of his films. Um, I think the reason why it's so easy for us to get Kiki's Delivery Service is because we've both been through that um, yeah. exact experience. And... I think that's just how it is with directors like this, where um, it's the same as like Villeneuve, right? Where mm -hmm. the things that they're talking about, um, this is actually the, the exact opposite of our last episode where we were talking about um, kind of like doing simple insights and accepting them for being simple. Yeah. Right. This is someone who has reached a truly profound conclusion about something in life and is sharing it with us with a like an emotional and logical story you know yeah and essentially proving it right yeah and, absolutely um i think this is why stories work so well this film kind of exemplifies that because because it it hits your heart first you know and then gives you kind of this trail for your mind to follow yeah yeah, it's a, yeah, it's definitely proven on an emotional level, and you're like, whatever, I believe now, <laughs> I believe that, and then you have right. to start, you're like, you have to start bringing words to whatever it is now that um, was proven to you, right? And what you felt deeply. Um, but for example, when I talk about Kiki's delivery service to a lot, of, oh, sorry, I just kicked my mic. But whenever I talk about Kiki's delivery service to people that um, have seen it and haven't really gone through that experience, they they understand what I mean, but they they um they almost like didn't even see that as a possibility even though it seems obvious to us yeah right yeah absolutely um but yeah this film i'm not i'm not as uh i guess certain as i am with kiki's delivery service well you about probably what the thought about it more than me so oh, well yeah i saw it um at the i think it was actually the first day of okay. this year um 
you saved it. <laughs> yeah, I, like I did. I do the same thing with directors I really love, where it's like it's almost like you know how people treat like liquor from like a, a bygone yeah. era. You know, it's like oh yeah. my goodness, this is from the year 1965 and I've been saving it, you know, and yeah. sort of a similar thing with films <laughs> because, you know, especially with someone who maybe hasn't made like insane amount of them, like someone like right. Scorsese, yeah. but uh, you're like, Oh, you know, I don't want to just sit down and do a marathon. I'd rather wait to watch this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I, I, I've always, I saved it for seven years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I definitely agree with you there where having, having enjoyed the experience more deeply, I think it's, it's worth it to wait sometimes, um, than to just blast through a bunch of movies like you were saying, but, um, but yeah, no, this, this, uh, I've thought about this one for a while. This is another one of those films that, um, you know, changed my life to some capacity or at least changed the way that I view things and think about things. Um, and this actually, on my top of the entire decade list this took the number one spot right when i watched it and then it was this like heated battle in my mind about whether this or blade runner should be my number (laughs) one film (laughs) Uh, because both both of them were films that um absolutely changed the way that i see things you know Mm -hmm. and uh like you said your top 10 is all a matter of taste even if it's for a year right Um, yeah I, I felt like for the decade I was just uh, battling between masterpieces and it was <laughs> yeah, absurd. What can you do? Yeah. <laughs> what can you do? Um, but yeah, no, having a, um, I, I think one of the easiest ways to start recognizing what, uh, I say easiest, um, one of the only ways for me to actually figure out what Miyazaki's talking about um, is by, seeing the juxtaposition that he uses between the fantastic and the mundane. Yeah. Um, because he's, he's always telling the same story, um, in both respects. Right. Um, yeah. And I think this one may have felt a bit more cryptic because, uh, you know, it was based in the real world, mm-hmm. but, uh, really like the, the planes, right. His dream. That's the, that's the fantastic element. Um, and even though it is a real world element, um, you know, he he found a point of human history that was essentially like fiction, right? These these uh, engineers were breathing their dreams into the world. Yeah. You know, and uh, like what a, it what is a- another comment you, you could say once again, the interesting thing about this is he, he does seem to comment, even though this is not the message of the film necessarily. Uh, he's talking about art again to some degree, you know, similar to Kiki's Delivery Service. Uh, just yeah. to interrupt you, like, I love that no, one line no. where the uh, Italian guy goes, <laughs> you only have 10 years, you know, you only have 10 years. After that, you're no good anymore. You got 10 years to get your creativity <laughs> out. And I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. so Miyazaki. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, but exactly where um, I-, I think that this film was about anybody who's trying to achieve um you know what what the main character was trying to achieve dreams um, right yeah like, that's what i was getting out of it it's about having dreams and it's about how that works out and all the nature of that well yeah and and we'll probably get more specific with it as we go on but um but uh 
Yeah, no, I, th- I think the mundane side of the story, like the side that's grounded in reality, is uh, the love story. Yeah, right? and then absolutely. the and then the uh, the fantastic portion, which is normally actually science fiction or fantasy for Miyazaki, was um, World War Two in the Plains, right? Yeah. Um, is uh, the character's uh, interior dream life? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He he even goes so far as to um, make that side of the film. Um, kind of uh, uh, fluid between the dream world and uh, the real world, right? Where sometimes, you know, he'll he'll just be in a train and like that part of the train, right? Where he's just there and then it transitions easily into uh, his dream. Exactly, um, yeah. And um, there's, the, there's an element of that almost in the way time's treated in this movie as well. Um, right. Where you sort of, there's these smooth transitions through years of time, you know? right. Uh, yeah, we don't even really talk about it. Um, it's sometimes mentioned in passing. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't think he ever even makes the effort to um, tell us when it is because it's not super important. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I guess we could just start by talking about um, like, so my closest guess for what this film is about um, I, I think the th- things that are important to look at it is the quote at the beginning that's repeated multiple times throughout the film, which is um, uh, the I think it's the wind rises, so we must live. Right. Yeah. Um, and more so than just dreams, I think this film is about what it means to truly to uh, truly live. Right. Yeah. Um, and. I think when you watch a lot of like Disney and Pixar movies and such, they, they kind of um, talk about the subject, but they do it in this very like a uh, superficial, you know, carpe diem style way, you know, where. Uh, yeah. I, I talk about this with my friends where there's this whole genre of movies that uh, essentially they boil down to life affirming movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I talk about this sarcastically because it's not that the wind rises maybe doesn't have something like this, like you're saying, but yeah. the way it's handled is not nearly as beautiful or evocative, you know, it's these. Well, I, right. Well, like, I think it's, I think it's because uh, they treat everything as if, as if it's peachy, you know? Yeah. Uh, this movie has a very distinct darkness to it. And uh, while the overall tone is, um, is, you know, affirming, right. Um, it's tragic it in terms of what actually happens. Yeah. Well, and it's it's affirming in a way that starts from the mud and the depths of humanity, right? Yeah. So it's not some um, to steal from Mulan really quick. It's not a, it's not a flower in a field of flowers. It's a flower in a landslide of mud. Right. You know, and that's. I, I think that's what's beautiful about this movie. So when you watch it, like I, I've, I was brought to tears when i uh first watched it um Hmm. even when i watched it the second time um but uh the first time was very profound right because it was really that um everything coming together at the end yeah right um but yeah no how but I, i think when you look at both sides of this right when you look at the fantastic the fantastic side of the story and the mundane side of the story, um, you start to see this um, 
through the juxtaposition a similarity between the two right and it's kind of this like beautiful pursuit um in the face of tragic reality mm-hmm. right um and i love that um, part where they're talking about whether they would want to live in a world with or without pyramids yeah you know? exactly yeah <laughs> especially considering how they were made you know right exactly uh, and they go over that and that's like you were as you were saying i didn't notice that but you're right there's this complete um parallel reality to the dreams in the real world that he's experiencing and right. this sort of dark element is in the dreams as well it's not just in that yeah conversation about pyramids but his dream about building airplanes is always sort of juxtaposed with a fantastical scene of combat at the end which is very horrifying you know right whether it's the yeah whether it's the plane exploding in the sky and crashing into the snow or um bombed out cities yeah yeah at the beginning when caproni's talking about how his beautiful creations will be sent to war and they like most of them will never return and you kind of see the fire um reflected in Jiro's glasses mm-hmm. you know as he as you hear kind of the air raid sirens and the bombs and you know and you kind of feel the horror um for yeah. a moment right and like i think like i i think anyone that talks about how like this movie glossed over that stuff is wrong right um because it's absolutely there yeah, so you wanted to make a quick comment about how we're disregarding some some things that have happened. Do you want to do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, like this, uh, the American reception of this, uh, you know, we, we don't even reception. Yeah, we don't <laughs> even really want to give it airtime because it was so, um, I don't know, profoundly toxic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it it just it just completely disregarded the entirety of what this movie meant, um, and. Um, disregarded individuals and kind of the beauty in their life and completely just uh focused on the uh i don't know i guess virtue signaling side of how you would receive this movie yeah um, absolutely and yeah no we're just not we're not really going to give that any airtime at all um, yeah but yeah anyways back to kind of the darkness behind the affirmation in this film there's uh like obviously you see that in the in the um in the mundane storyline right and it's funny calling it mundane because it's absolutely brilliant and beautiful but um, yeah (laughs) it's actually very engaging (laughs) right but it's not it's not fantastical right so right right um but yeah having a um having this kind of like beautiful love blossom um in the midst of uh kind of this sickness right mm-hmm. um knowing that this girl has uh, tuberculosis and is going to die and they don't really have um they don't really have any uh future right yeah. um it, and it's, it's also it's set up as such a beautiful love story from like, you know, from the point he saves them uh, as a right. young boy going to college to almost having run ins with them over the years. And yet, of course, the wind, right? The right. wind rises, the quote, like the wind leading them together these several times. Um, they finally reunite. They finally figure out that, that, you know, they're the people that survived that whole earthquake so many years ago. 
and mm. then you know he wants to marry her and uh she's got tuberculosis and it doesn't look good because her mother's already <laughs> died you know yeah yeah um and you know usually in like a disney story or something you'd have uh you'd have uh a situation where uh you know she gets miraculously cured at the end and they get yeah. to live happily ever after and this this isn't about that right i would say that like the ending is a happy ending right mm-hmm. but it's i it's don't know a, man it's a bittersweet I, ending you know it's like the it's the best kind of ending it's uh because at the end of the you know at the end of the movie he's having it's essentially dream scene at the very end right where he meets right. its old Italian right. mentor and she's there you know in his dream and yeah. uh, they're talking about how he achieved uh, his goal of making a an amazing fighter airplane you know um, but yeah she's died in real life and he has to continue on and she says that to him right what what does she say that uh, she wants him to live right um, yeah exactly yeah. Uh, see this is like i don't i don't know exactly what to make of the film like i don't i I wish i had the kind of like kiki's delivery service like i can describe that film perfectly right yeah but i don't know like miyazaki is a man who i believe has achieved um achieved what jiro has in his lifetime right where he, he was able to breathe his dreams into reality and he was able to truly truly live you yes. know um and i think that makes him uh kind of unafraid of death because when he when he talks about why he doesn't want to make him another movie he's just talking about uh how he doesn't want to die in the middle of the production yeah right and leave it unfinished um yeah absolutely yeah and uh because he takes so long. <laughs> he does. Um, yeah. It's okay, though. Uh, he has actually yeah. another one coming out in uh, 2021, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, might be his last one. Um, he said we'll that it's his last one, I think, two films in a row. Yeah. Now. Uh, <laughs> He'll convince himself to do another one. I think, tragically, he's probably going to end up doing what he's afraid of doing. But I'd rather take that chance just to get another Miyazaki movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, it would it would even be interesting if they just left it unfinished. True. Um, and just released it. And I don't know. Maybe maybe it would be a little upsetting for the viewer, but, you know, it'd be interesting. Yeah. Um, they could at least release a version of it with uh, everything that was done, you know? Yeah. In terms of, uh, and then try to finish it in his honor. Who knows? Right. But um, yeah. So, kind of living living life in the face of this darkness. I, I think that's kind of getting getting to the point, right? Where I wouldn't say that's exactly what it is. I think I think because that's not some profound uh, statement. And like the ending, you can you can feel it when you watch this film. The ending is extremely extremely profound and the juxtaposition of these two timelines coming together in that moment means something very significant um yeah and you you can once you start really analyzing movies a lot you can always feel when that's happening you know even Mm -hmm. if you don't understand it like this was the same thing that happened in blade runner for me where you know you just you saw that ending and you're like holy shit there's something going on here i don't know what it is yet you know (laughs) You can and you can kind of grasp what the lesser insights throughout the movie are the ones that you know lead up to this final cumulative 
uh, point. But yeah. um, it's often really hard to gauge it on the first viewing or, you know, even, I don't know, I've watched Spirited Away and Totoro like four or five times now each, and I still don't know what those mean. <laughs> you know, and I have like my soft theories and uh, the lesser insights in the film, but um, as far as what it comes together as, I think the only one that I've really done successfully is Kiki's Delivery Service. Yeah, I mean, I agree essentially with what you're saying, you know, maybe it's not the most elegant way to put it, but there is, I mean, that's like an overwhelming aspect of the film is him having to live, in a sense, live his dreams, you know, as she says at the very end, live, live, um, in the face of all these very negative things, in the face of her tuberculosis, which they decide for a brief period to essentially ignore because she's going to die anyway. So they're going to live now. Right. You know, yeah. They he's going to say... make a beautiful airplane in the face of it, probably being used for war, which he doesn't support because it's still his dream. He's still trying to make this beautiful thing. You know, right. he's going to make it even though for whatever reason, the secret police have decided to pursue him for a little while. I believe it was because of yeah. the uh, German spy that he was associated with. Yeah. Um, which by the way, I just want to talk about that scene really quick. I fucking love that scene. Um, when they have a c- cigarette together? Yeah, yeah. Where the, him yeah, and the German really spy good. are having a cigarette. And uh, they're they're kind of talking about the state of the world in this very cryptic way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really sure. But on this watch of it, I kind of picked up that maybe um, he had m- made some sort of connections in Germany when he was there. And he was waiting there to meet somebody. Or that it was mm-hmm. some sort of like German summit. Um, yeah. Because there were a lot of Germans there, and that he knew the German song that they were singing. Interesting. You know? um, yeah, and also there's that scene which never was explained afterward of the guy when he was there with his friend in Germany studying the German engineering, where the guys get being chased. Remember that scene? Right, right. Uh, and that's not really explained. So, yeah, uh, like you know. Well, and and this was this was during the rise of Hitler, right? And uh, yeah, you you see this german spy kind of uh actually berating him right where he says like hitler and the nazis are um bullies and because of them germany will explode yeah right um and you kind of get this sense that there's some some other uh some other uh powers at work you know um whether it's like old germany or you know maybe the german government outside of the nazis um and and you also uh because also when when he, i think what was it the first thing that he said to him was that uh like dr junkers was in trouble yeah he was trying right. to make a stand against uh the right. nazi government right right um he also makes the comment that japan will blow up as well as germany right yeah yeah well, and yeah and then after that you start seeing like the secret police get involved um well and, and the uh the his boss calls them the thought police right um (laughs) right well i mean that's that's what they were right they were there to uh impose the emperor's will and anybody who thought otherwise you know and there is an explanation of uh a surface level explanation of why they're after our main character Mm -hmm. um which is you know it's random you know essentially like they for whatever reason if they just get paranoid about you at all you know sure um, but I agree with you. There does seem to be some sort of element to the fact that there was a German that he was talking well, to. Yeah, also, the-, the German seems to be, to some degree, almost a part of his mind, too. You know what I mean? It's one of those elements where I was wondering, I was like, how much of that was 
reality and how much was that fin- was fantastical because remember she sure. would disappear at different moments and right right um but also later he does uh so after the secret police are after him he uh does remark that he wonders why they're the um the japanese are after him and that he hopes he left the country successfully yeah you know um so like i, I do think all of that was very connected and um I feel like I'd probably have to do a little more research about uh, um, that era of history, especially in Japan, um, to be able to understand what was going on there. Well, especially just this guy's life, because as we know, this is based on a real guy. So Right, right. Um, how would, you know, I should have asked this at the very beginning, but how yeah. do you pronounce our main character's name? Uh, Jiro. Okay. I yeah. was pretty much right then. I just didn't yeah. want to attempt it until I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jiro is fine for the Americanized, but yeah, you know, uh, in Japanese, the R and the L are one sound. Okay. So it's kind of this weird in between, but, uh, yeah, Jiro is fine. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, there's a, uh, uh, how did we get on that? We were talking about well, we were talking about how I essentially agree with you that there's this element of um, uh, of overcoming the dark aspects of your dream, of overcoming the dark aspects of your reality and still just fighting for your dreams anyways and living. Right, right. You know, living well, even knowing, especially in his case, that, you know, his love of his life is going to die soon. And the thing he's doing is going to be involved in, you know, a mechanized slaughter of human beings. And it's probably going to lead to Japan blowing up as he's beginning to believe over the course of the film right um and i agree with you uh essentially i think um that's you know it, it may be crude for us to put it this way but i think that is sort of the message of the film to some degree at least that i can see is it's sort of a comment on how to live well how to live your life in the face of evil things right and pursue your dreams and, right right well and I, I think i think that's the question right yeah how, how do we live our lives um, in the face of evil things and in the pursuit of our dreams. Um, and I, th- I think that's, this is exactly where I was with Blade Runner too, where like we have the question, but you could tell that the answer was in the film. Right. And I think the answer is probably in the juxtaposition between his, uh, his home life and his fantastical life. Yeah. Right? And I also think there's an element of the wind in there. I think the wind might be part of the answer to that. Definitely. Question. Yeah. Where, you know, what is it? The quote is the wind rises or something exclamation point. Yeah. The wind, the wind rises. So we must live. Um, Exactly. And his entire life is almost um, determined by the sort of this sort of force, you know, this natural force of living that sort of carries him. And it's, you know, it's a great, great symbolic force, especially for a guy who's making airplanes, you know? Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, about uh you know it, it's almost sort of like rolling with it you know rolling with whatever life throws at you um, sure rolling with the punches yeah. and um yeah it's it's interesting um there's a lot of elements to think about um huh. yeah i feel like we're almost there i feel like we you know yeah. if, and you know actually, and sometimes i say this sometimes you can't succinctly not saying that we can't with this, but sometimes you just can't succinctly uh, put the message of a film in a sentence or two, you know? And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's fair. It can but, have a um, definitive message, but... Yeah, I, well, I think the way that I think about it is like a pyramid, right? Where like everything, you have all these insights, lesser insights that build on top of each other and then finally lead to one fi- 
like final insight. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. There's uh, I think the whole uh, any masterpiece I think can be kind of qualified like that, you know, um, with Paul Thomas Anderson, it's less about plot points and more about uh, character arcs and, you know, in the King, uh, we're looking at like heavy plot points. Um, I think we're actually closer um, in this film than we are with the King. Yeah, um, I would say so too. But, uh, but yeah, no, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that last turtle is so freaking big that, uh, you know, we'd need to accomplish what he accomplished to be able to understand it um, on an intellectual level, at least because I, I can damn yeah. well feel it at the end. Yeah, we you may know? need to be we need we may need to be middle aged, if not old yeah. aged, by the time it, it really <laughs> right. hits home. Right. Um because we we haven't, you know, faced the degradation of our own bodies and such yet. Um which Yeah, and we haven't we haven't achieved either and we haven't yeah, uh, had yeah. to face overwhelming tragedy in our lives, you know. To exactly. the degree. Right. Um but uh, one thing that I do want to talk about actually is uh, let, let's put a bookmark in the meaning of the film for now. And let's actually talk about the uh, kind of like production of this kind of thing and um, how all yeah. that go, goes through. But uh, before we go into that, let's also talk about the, the music. Uh, so Joe Hisaishi yeah. is one of my favorite composers of all time. Uh, he is world renowned for his abilities. Uh, it's in my opinion, one of the, uh, the greatest composers of the last century. Yeah. Um, it was beautiful music. Yeah. Um, the, the way that I would kind of describe his music is a, a combination between like traditional Japanese uh, music, uh, kind of old school Hollywood. And then, yeah, sort of like when like uh, old school Hollywood was using a lot of like the romantic music, like Ramadan. Right. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then jazz actually. Okay. Um, and he actually he actually has a couple of jazz albums that are really 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 good. Um, but what the thing that I really like about how he works is that he uses um, uh, he uses voicings um that are from uh jazz chords, but he breaks them apart and plays them in a way that's kind of spread out, so you don't really notice that it has this jazzy feel. Right. He's just hitting like the voicings that are like the ninth to the 13th of a chord and, um, you know, playing them in a way that gives you this very uh, distinct and precise emotion, you know, mm. um, but he's not cluttering it with, uh, you know, just playing every single note in that chord as you would in a lot of uh, in a lot of jazz. Right. Um, so. Uh, let's see. There's a. Uh, do you have anything to add? By the way, <laughs> I don't want to like steamroll. No, uh, no, you're good. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to the technicality of music, I can't really. Uh, um, I can't uh, comment on the craft like that. But all I can say is, it, there, this movie does. You know, you, you sometimes sit down and you watch a movie, and it, it attempts to use music in the way this movie uses music, where. Mm -hmm. In these great moments, in these great emotional moments, especially even the, the very romantic moments in this movie, the music swells and so on. And a lot of the times, you know, it, it simply isn't pulled off. It doesn't feel right. But the music in this movie is very emotionally powerful. 
And uh, it reminded me, like, I haven't probably seen music used in a romantic context so powerful since uh, Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice okay. adaptation. So I, you know, I just, in terms of that for me, you, you know, you saying early Hollywood, I, I was thinking about Ramanov well, yeah. listening to some of these uh, songs at certain aspects and it was very good. Well, actually one, good. I really, that, that actually segues really well into what I was going to go into next, which was uh, the difference between kind of uh, complexity and accuracy and emotion. And I think, and sorry, in music. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot in uh, kind of the music industry in general, uh, a lot of people get into uh, complexity and that being the most important aspect. Mm, You know, not my boy, Max Richter. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that's a very good example of someone who's incredibly accurate um, with his music. Right. Yeah. And um, a lot of people kind of call it um, uh, simple, you know, but I actually think it's, it's the other way around where, um, when you start kind of learning music, you start at this simple place yeah. and you naturally, you know, as you learn more things, you kind of move into these complexities. Um, as you, as you learn the more advanced, uh, voicings and the way that you can put, uh, different types of chords that shouldn't go together together, you know, um, you start thinking, Oh, like, let me be as complex as possible. Let me fill as much of this empty space as I can, Yeah, you know? And then, uh, I, I think that's when you kind of, I think mastery of it comes in kind of the reduction of that again, where um, you start asking yourself, how can I achieve said emotion or said sound with the least amount of things possible? I think what you're describing here is a pattern over all sort of yeah uh, art forms and storytelling mediums where, you know, this is the whole Fincher thing of what is it not? This is the whole sculptor thing of taking away what it isn't, you know? Right, exactly. Um, and yeah, ev- eventually, yeah, you get to this point where everything is just accurate. And this, this you know, does transcend music and goes into film, writing, whatever, right? Um, what you're essentially looking for is to say the exact right things, right? Yeah. Um, and with a composer like Joe Hisaishi, I, I really like to... Um, Actually, um, I like to look at people like Joe Hisaishi, uh, like John Williams, like Danny Elfman. Um, actually, I'd say John Powell, too. Um, Ennio Morricone. Uh, these guys, they they sound like they're talking, right, when they're writing it, when they're writing music. It's not this, like, superficial thing. They're, they're really getting down into the nitty-gritty of the idea. Sure. You know? And I, I think... Uh, I think Hans Zimmer can sometimes get there, um, you know, uh, yeah. and he can get there really well. I do believe that he makes a lot of kind of like filler music. I agree. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, he, I think Hans Zimmer does kind of like f- fall into that Max Richter category, you know. Um, but I think someone like John, uh, Joe Hisaishi, sorry. Um, he is so brilliant in the way that he makes music to where like when we're talking about the insight, if you listen to one of his songs, like it will, like you almost feel like he's saying it to you in a sentence, but it's music, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, no, it, it's, it's really just magical. And, uh, 
I can't believe that one of the world's best composers has teamed up with one of the world's best directors <laughs> and <laughs> is creating stuff like this, right? And yeah. I would say the music is just as brilliant as the film itself. Um, yeah, it's very, very good. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And like together it creates something so powerful that, uh, you know, you, you almost can't help but get swept away by it. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot of people try to simplify it, oversimplify it to the point where they're just like talking about the magic of, uh, the magic of Miyazaki movies. Right. Um, sure. and they use it the same way they use the word genius, right? Where they, they say yeah. genius and then they don't have to think about it anymore. They, yeah, uh, <laughs> it's right, a typical, they, almost like a way to write about film, which is like using a bunch of catchy adjectives and, uh, it's, you know, right, right. And it, I, I've always hated the term genius because all it does is like, uh, take away the hard work that people have done and kind of imply that like they were given this. You know, and when these guys, when when I'm talking about these guys as geniuses, I, I do mean that like they are, they are both brilliant and studied to the extreme and them coming together in the way that they have is, is what creates that magic. And uh, both people are people that have devoted their lives to their crafts. Well, to you wrap know. it back into the film, I mean, just watch the movie, you know, yeah. you might call our main character Jiro a genius, but you get to see the the work and the failure that went into it, you know? Right, right. So. Um, but yeah, uh, there was one moment in the film in particular where the score really, really struck me. Um, and it was when, uh, what's her name? Naoko? His, yeah, his so. wife? Yeah. She was coming back from the sanatorium, right? Um, mm -hmm. and she had just gotten the news that, you know, she's not getting better and she's made the decision to, um, stop trying to get better and then go home and live out her days with, uh, Jiro. Right. Yeah. And, uh, oh God, the line where, uh, he was trying to convince his, uh, boss to marry them. And yeah. he, he the only thing that he has to say to explain it to his boss is that we cherish every day now. Yeah. You know, and that was it. And his boss understood and, you know, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, th this whole part where she's coming back, um, on the train, um, and he, uh, hears that she left the sanatorium and he's kind of rushing to, uh, um, meet her at there, meet her there. And I, I think that's, that's a really important part of the film. And I think, you can usually tell when a filmmaker has wants to highlight a moment in a film because they'll often just uh, just let the music work. Um, if they're mm -hmm. if they're a filmmaker who relies heavily on music, like uh, I'd say actually Nicholas Winding Refn or uh, you know Miyazaki here, uh, John Williams too. Um, yeah. Uh, actually, David Fincher as well, right? Yeah. Um, but what they'll kind of do is take these moments that are very, very important and just uh, allow a very important piece of the score to play over what's happening. Um, and then that almost becomes, they, it, you know, they turn it up a lot. It becomes the main focus. And they're, I, I feel like they're trying to highlight an emotional, um, an emotional peak. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And if we're going to talk about, 
um, if we're going to talk about what the meaning of this film is, I think this is a, a scene that we have to look at in particular because I think this is a, a huge turning point, right? Where a massive decision has been made. Yeah, this is in um, a sense the the moment where uh, he he has to do what the film is about, as you're saying, right? You know. Um. So uh, actually, do you want to do you want to actually play the song now? And I, I know yeah. we're probably close to the break point, but. No, that's fine. Uh, go ahead and introduce the uh, the name of the song and then the, uh, the yeah. composer one more time and we'll play it and we'll give everyone a little break while they listen. Cool. So, um, yeah, Joe Hisaishi and uh, let me see. Uh, I want to find the actual name of the song because. Yeah. It's. Uh, Make sure people can look it up properly. Yeah. Yeah, that there is definitely go. a moment I remember in the movie. Go ahead. So this song is uh, by Joe Hisaishi. It's called, uh, it's one of Naoko's themes. Uh, it's called An Unexpected Meeting. Perfect. All right, we'll see you guys in a few minutes.
man. Okay, so yeah, that song is uh It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's crazy how like uh when you when you think about what this film's about, you know, and you listen to this song, you can you, can, you just you it almost makes more sense listening to it there than it does hearing us talk about it. Yeah. You know. And yeah, when when you get into, I, I know when we talk about like you know the accuracy of music, everyone's probably like, oh, that's subjective, right? Um, sure. But I, I'm not sure that it, it completely is. Um, in the same way that uh, juxtaposition juxtaposition between shots isn't really subjective, you know. Essentially, yeah, I mean, it's just a favorite thing of people to say, like sort of a snotty thing that people say when you talk about what a piece of art storytelling is about, you know, it's like, well, this right. is subjective. This is subjective. It's the most like, uh, inane thing people yeah, say yeah. all the time. Yeah. Because it's like, yeah, like sure. Everything, everything technically is subjective, but we can make like reasonable distinctions, right. Between, yeah. the, between the smallest components. And, you know, when, when it's you, very obvious that people have an objective in mind, when they're doing this, you know, right, exactly. And w- when you can hear a major chord and it sounds happy, and when you can hear a minor chord and it sounds sad, you know, that's not really ob- um, object subjective at that point, you know. And whether it's cultural or universal, uh, it's it is objective in either of those rights, yeah. you know. So if we can make that distinction, if we can make that most fundamental distinction, we can extrapolate that outwards towards everything else. And just because you know we don't have the ability or the knowledge, um or you know the studiedness uh to be able to make that distinction on a greater level doesn't mean that it doesn't exist yeah you know and um yeah no when you when you listen to someone like joe saishi and like uh when especially when you're watching the film it, it uh and when your subconscious is tackling it um you understand you know yeah. um but i think i think it's when the unstudied person applies their un, um, unconscious brain or their, sorry, their actual conscious mind to something. Um, mm-hmm. You just start to get a lot of uh, warp warping happening, right? Where, you know, like if, if you, if you gave someone a complex math problem and said, solve this and they don't, they, they're not studied in complex math. Right. They would say, yeah. uh, I don't know. Right. Um, yeah, but anything but, else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and and but also like if if you gave someone like a math problem um, and said what's wrong with this, right? They would start trying to find something wrong with it. And like I think that's what happens when you start trying to apply your conscious brain to something that's uh, that you're not studied in. Yeah, you know, is that it just starts trying to reach for these uh, uh, like uh, conclusions that it it doesn't have any justification for. Um. Yeah. But no, listening to, I mean, that song, all, all of his music is just beautiful. Um, but especially that song really struck me while I was watching the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of them did, but that one in particular, that moment was, um, you know, one of the highlights. Yeah, it's definitely of the, the song me. that there was about two songs in there. And that one was definitely one in my mind as well. Yeah. Um, that is sort of almost like that scene is is in many ways sort of like 
the climax of the movie and you know right and like yeah you almost have this additional like um where they cut like an epilogue afterwards or um because you know in a way like that's when he as a character affirms the message of the movie and like more of it sort of explained to him but in a way explained to the audience later on especially in the end with his dream yeah you know but um so uh, yeah, obviously the music's great. Uh, I would recommend checking out Joe Hisaishi. He does um, he does all of Miyazaki's movies. He does a lot of other films as well. Um, he writes uh, uh, you know full orchestral classical music um, and jazz on his own as well um, that aren't attached to any films. Um, but he is he is a very uh, it's funny. I, I was actually in film school and we were watching. Um, I can't remember what film it was, but uh, we were watching a film and he was like, oh, that that soundtrack was cheesy. I'm like, you do realize this guy's like one of the most like, <laughs> accomplished composers on the fucking planet. Blood vessel pops in Nick's eye. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I mean, this was this was someone who like, you know, feeling any sort of positive emotion was uh, was essentially the worst crime. uh film could come in <laughs> sure you know um sure it so, all has to be cynical or dark right right there wasn't there wasn't a lot of uh um comprehension going on the music side there and well, he, he was unstudied in trying to you know come up with criticism for um for why he likes right. certain things and why right right other things yeah but um no uh there was a uh I was I was actually between that score that score and then uh, the one that plays at the at the very end of the film, but honestly, like I felt like the the one at the very end works best with the film, you know, sure, kind of in tandem. Um, but this one gets gets the point across fairly well by itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, what about the uh, art? Yes, uh, it's amazing. You know, I remember watching Princess Monoroke at one of those special screenings in AMC. Yeah. Uh, and this was the first time I saw Miyazaki and mm. just the things that he pulls off with hand drawn animation. Crazy. Yeah. That other, you know, that it's just like, especially looking at uh, what qualifies as Western animation, which really isn't Western animation in many ways. It's sort of just like this outsourced you know, weird shit, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, you just can't believe some of the almost like 3D environments that he pulls off these sort of special, you know, almost what, you know, FX shots that he pulls right. off with. Just, it's everything is, um, it's brilliant, you know? And then, the, you know, also just the environments he pulls off. He pulls off these very evocative environments. I was just loving watching like early 1900s Japan yeah. in terms of the different villages and environments but also when they go to germany you know yeah yeah it was astounding and uh he's able to pull off uh these unique characters as well you know yeah and uh you know you actually do see uh changes in the characters from i remember when Euro, uh i'm sorry jiro uh with you know with his glasses and then you have these moments with uh when he had, when they're getting married yeah. And it's weird it is in animation. She actually does look beautiful. Oh, yeah. But it's animation, you know? And yeah, it's yeah. just like, it's weird to have that feeling. 
Um, well, I, I think it's because, you know, like, I, I feel like animation, you know, when people are like, oh, well, I can't tell if that person's beautiful because they're animated. It's like, well, I mean, they're all like all of their features are representative of, you know, features that we know. So it's only a, a jump away. <laughs> sure. You know, like it's. Um, but it is strange because you don't yeah. see that in like a Pixar movie, you know, like a sure. lot of what Western animation with the computers is, is almost to make a caricature. Of, right, of, right. Of human features, and what you do see in like two D animation in the West is essentially uh, comedy television, things like Rick and Morty and so on. And yeah, that this is or like, children's stuff. Yeah, this but... is almost like a like a romantic representation of actual reality. Right, and uh, you get the sense of real places and real real people, and you know he, his cinematography essentially is as good as any of the great dps out there oh yeah um and it's 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 kind of crazy to think about too because uh he you know since everything's drawn like he there's no uh uh there's there's no like communication or things that need things that become lost right Mm -hmm. um it's all from him which is kind of absurd if you think about it with you know how good all the frame like he, because when you look at this there's absolutely cinematography here even though there's no camera right yeah um but when you look at framing when you look at color when you look at lighting it's all there you know yeah and if you just if you just turn this into live action and you just mimicked all the shots it would be brilliantly shot yeah it right? would <laughs> yeah <laughs> um it's it's really incredible and and i'm i'm i've always been so impressed with his ability to uh kind of use this because because we've talked about this in previous episodes but in japan they kind of use exaggeration as um a tool yeah um and you'll see that happen in this too and i, I think he's a lot lighter on the exaggeration aspect yeah, he's real light compared to other anime I've seen. But, right, but it's there and it's subtle, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say the his most... sister is a source of it in this movie. I would say. Sorry, what? I would say his sister, the main character's sister, is a source of that in this. Sure. In this one, um, also, also, just like any natural disaster, um, mm-hmm. those are exaggerated. Um, you know, I, I even liked how I think he actually used human voices for the earthquake. I was wondering um, that, man, when yeah. it started up, it sounded like it was like a Gregorian uh, choir. Yeah, moment, which you was know? so bizarre. But like, I, I think it it almost fit better psychologically. Like you almost felt more like what you would be like in that situation than hearing the actual objective sound of what it would sound like. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but. Yeah, but how kind of like the ground rippled, you know, and it, it, it you also all see like some of the exaggeration in his yeah. dreams. I speak, I think, uh, specifically when he's um, uh, with the Italian mentor, his dream mentor guy, and they're checking out that like uh, that super big plane that's supposed to like carry people around, you know, yeah, and yeah. Then he's got his whole village in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I liked when they uh when they all popped out with the Italian flag after they Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah. Uh <sighs> yeah, but uh let's see. 
I, I don't know, man. This this Miyazaki often talks about how you know it'll be a sad day when uh, kind of hand drawn stuff comes in, and uh, which it, I, I, I'd argue that it kind of has. Yeah, um, he, I feel like it's just going to be a novelty is almost the wrong word, but it's going to be an exception, you know. Yeah. Uh, it already is and it will be in the future. Right. Man. Everything otherwise it's going to be CGI or just, you know, hand drawn but on a computer. Right. Um and his next uh his next film I believe is going to be the last probably hand drawn thing for a while unless unless his studio keeps pushing out uh, hand drawn stuff after. Yeah. Um I know his son's I remember films. Uh, Oh, interesting. Yeah, he did the Secret uh World of Arietti, I think it's called. Hey, did you watch it? I did. I did. Yeah. I, I like it, it too. Um, okay, good. I think good. it's it's funny because I, I think he's a little more uh, somber in his tone than Miyazaki, but I think it's because he's uh, not as uh, lived. Sure. You know, and like, I, I think when you look at something like this, like Miyazaki hits darker places. Um, Like, like basically the, the place that he's hitting here is, uh, you know, the loss of love and mass slaughter yeah you know <laughs> they're not yeah. light topics but uh persecution <laughs> right right um but it never really reflects in the tone because i don't think it's helpful uh to what he's trying to say yeah right also uh i remember that documentary you watched about him you know mm -hmm. and he is a person that uh has almost like a dark demeanor like he almost has like uh, like a a cynical sense of humor right but you know he has a sense of humor at the end of the day and he does laugh and he does smile even though it's like uh oh, am i gonna die today <laughs> like that's what he's like <laughs> saying in the documentary he's like it's today right. the day i die finally right um, um but it was interesting in that documentary bringing it back to animation he did try 3d out i i wonder if we could find that short film online maybe one day if we have like once we uh build up this podcast we can do some sort of special live stream events and we'll like watch short films of directors That'd that be cool. we haven't watched yeah. or like trailers or something. But I want to watch that CG thing that he did of that caterpillar. Um, right. Because yeah. Cause he seemed not happy with the process <laughs> at all. So well, that, that's what inspired him to make another movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wonder if he was like, I can't go out with this fucking caterpillar. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, I remember no, was, some of those moments. He just went off on people. He just right, went off right. on all those young people. Just uh, like, this is shit. <laughs> yeah, and he kept he kept asking them to change the smallest stuff, and they were having to like go back to the modeling stage and like. Yeah, know, it was. Yeah, it's interesting because he he is doing things in this that are almost like if if not impossible, just very difficult to do with models and like going straight from the mind to the page is a lot. Um, it's a lot easier. Yeah. But it's still the level that he does it at is very hard. I mean, right, right. Just yeah. knowing I would never, as much as I admire Mizaki, I would never want to work for him. <laughs> never want to work for him. I understand you how you feel, but chewed out. Oh yeah. You would be held to such a high standard. Yeah. Would... <laughs> I mean, which would be good for you, but yeah it would just get you know you'd have to deal with that yeah um man but uh yeah let's see this this film i, I don't know i i 
I, I always go back and forward between what my favorites are. Um, I'd say this is one of his films for adults. Uh, sure. I'd say it's this one, Mononoke and uh, Nasuka. Okay. And then he has a lot of young adult movies. Um, a few children's movies. Uh, yeah, a couple children's movies. Uh, like uh, I'd say Kiki's is probably a ch- children's movie. Yeah, maybe, maybe a young adult. Um, but uh, Totoro and Ponyo are absolutely, you know, like target audience like five to eight. You know, yeah. um, they're still ex- incredibly profound. Um, and I, 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 I like this thing that Miyazaki does, where he he doesn't ever, um, talk down to the audience, and he he kind of does this thing where like even though the audience is five to eight year olds, he, he doesn't make the insight for them. Right. Sure. Because I feel like you still kind of understand it um, through the way that he does things where like he is trying to hit this emotional chord first. Yeah. Right. So as a child, when you watch these movies, you totally feel whatever he's talking about. You just don't understand it. And as an adult, um, I mean, if you look at Totoro, like I still don't understand it. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which this is not for lack of trying. I've sat down with this movie multiple times and you know, I, I always, I always like to give up eventually because I don't want to start, you know, when you start looking into something so hard that you start seeing things that you want to see rather than what's there. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Um, that That's always what I try to avoid. And when I start feeling myself going down that path, I'm like, well, that's enough. Let's let this sit for another year. <laughs> sure. You know? Um, yeah. I think uh, Miyazaki sort of exemplifies something I've been saying about cinema to you for a while. And I think I said it on, couple of our episodes yeah just sort of like the inherent romantic nature of cinema where it is about getting the emotionality across first and it is about um disregarding certain aspects if it gets in the way of that where you know oh i don't i shouldn't have to explain the time lapses in this that's gonna get in the way of the flow of the movie so we'll just (laughs) make them deal with it and we'll trust that they'll be able to figure it out you know right right and things like that you know small things like that to big things about where it's like well, I'd rather them feel the message of the movie. And if having to more make the message of the movie more explicit gets in the way of that, then then they're just going to feel it primarily, you know? Right. And I, so. I think that's I think that's the beauty of film is that we can. Um, like over over things like philosophy. Um, like I, I would go as far as to say, you know, philosophers are just bad storytellers that are trying to do the same thing. <laughs> um <laughs> where they have to you know say it in words and um prove it with logic and hope that um hope that it gets yeah. across and if you've met a human for more than three seconds you know that emotion <laughs> works way better <laughs> yeah you know um, absolutely 110 percent. that's why you know that's why i ultimately chose filmmaking even though philosophy is such a secondary passion of mine you know right right yeah exactly and and i feel like uh a lot of a lot of people underestimate the emotional intelligence of human beings, you know? Yeah. Um, and I've always thought that this is something that's like in the face of all this kind of technological advancement in the world, you know, we're getting things like AI that can just logic the crap out of us, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it will never have, uh, at least in our lifetimes or any lifetime close to ours, it'll, it'll never have the same emotional intelligence. Right. You know, and uh, yeah, it's missing uh, those romantic elements of being a human. Well, and I would say it's missing the nonlinear elements of being human. 
right? Sure. It's it's I think that's where we we thrive and just AI in general, the the nature of them is that they're linear, they're they're binary at their most fundamental level. Right. Um yeah. like if if their whole world is zeros and ones, right, at, at the most fundamental level of how they perceive the universe. Yeah. Um they, it's they statistical. Have, right. Well, they have no choice but to be linear, right? Sure. And I, I wish um I wish we, like as humans we would we would focus more on that nonlinear side of us, you know, and cultivate that and see that as intelligence because to be fair, I've I, I don't so think I've ever been watching Arrival soon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but to be fair, like I don't think I've ever met anybody uh, that I would consider extremely intelligent that is a, a linear thinker. Sure, right? It's uh, you know, it's almost uh, book smarts. You know, it's like uh, well, it, the, when you can be replaced with a calculator, um, yeah. like what is your value really? Yeah, if you've just memorized an encyclopedia, <laughs> right? Um, but I, I think humans' inherent power comes from the ability to draw conclusions from things that are completely un, unrelated. Nice. You know? So, yeah, to bring it back about The Wind Rises, uh, we do see that almost in the filmmaking. What you were saying earlier about the juxtaposition between his real life and the, and the dream life, the fantastic life, you know? Right. He has this romantic element of living a life. And in a sense, it's the important element. Right. And the important element of his real life is the romantic relationship he has with the love of his life. <laughs> right. So, right. And yeah. isn't it, even that's even interesting because like I would say there's definitely kind of a duality between what he feels about planes, you know, and what he feels about her. Sure. Um, uh, planes, planes are... <laughs> Uh, actually, to put it in the film's own words, right? Um, what are airplanes but um, beautiful dreams. dreams? Yeah, beautiful dreams. Yeah, yeah. And I, actually, one one thing that I kind of want to bring up with this is um, how incredible this was at the time, right? How these planes weren't things that were like because we look at these movies and we're like, oh, a propeller plane, right? But <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> when you see his plane it's something that like has never existed before it truly is his dream and yeah. this man brought something from his dream into the world and it's part of our world now you know mm -hmm. and i think this gets back to the whole argument about pyramids right where like would you rather live in the world with pyramids or without them like because someone dreamed those into existence and it probably killed a lot of people <laughs> sure. to get that dream into existence. And like, I think that's kind of the dual nature of humans in general is that as we move forward, as we kind of push into the future and develop as beings, um, there's always going to be a cost for dreams. Yeah. You know, and yeah, great things aren't, you know, these, uh, it's not black and white. If you're achieving something great, there is a tremendous, right. Uh, human to human cost. Right. And, when you think about how tragic the, and I feel like we're right on the cusp of figuring out what this is about, but uh, when you look at the, the end of his uh, relationship, right. Um, because the tragedy there is that love has been like the love that they have has, has been kind of um, 
uh, wrecked by death. Sure. Right. And I think a lot of people would propose, um, propose that these dreams not exist, right? That if this dream is going to hurt anybody that we don't breathe it into existence. And yeah. I, I, I think, I think the love story is the counter argument. Yeah. Right. Where like, if, if they didn't want to get hurt, they would have, they would have just decided not to be with each other. Yeah. Right. She would have stayed at the sanatorium. Right. And instead of doing that, they, they decided to like face the darkness of the world, face, face everything in order to be in love and Mm -hmm. in order to have each other. And, um, that it was better to live in love than to, you know, run and hide from death, you know, run and hide from the bad things in life. Right. So maybe what would be a good way to put this? Maybe, Maybe the lesson of this film might be that, uh, like in the face of, death and in the face of like these horrible things that um that will direct that will result result directly of our dreams yeah um it is essentially maybe more important to have been to have created something beautiful um otherwise we will have not have lived um Something like yeah, that. Yeah, I could see that. I think we're we're getting so close. Well, I think the one thing the one thing I wonder about is the wind. You know, I keep coming back to the wind as sort of a force that, well, he has a dream. The wind is almost propelling him. You know, it's almost like he has to surrender. Yeah, I think. Well, I feel like it's it's maybe it's about our nature. Um. Yeah. Because it's his nature to create planes, right? As a- yeah, and it's also, I think, about sort of surrendering uh, your lack of control. It's similar to them not fighting her dying anymore and accepting it and rather sure. treating each day as precious. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, she's essentially the inspiration for so maybe, uh, him completing his dream. So maybe the beginning of it should should have been changed. So not kind of like in the face of like this darkness but maybe more so uh while accepting the darkness um yeah yeah like that could be it um i'm actually oh i'm thinking about the movie i want to like see if there's anything else we're kind of missing i know i'm running through it in my mind too we're close. We might have gotten it. We're I mean, so I, there might be close. a more eloquent way to put it, but um, yeah, um, I think that's about it. And that's different than kind of like you know being like. I mean, it's very. Go ahead. Saying that, like, despite uh, like you know, oh, there's dark things, but you know, we should live. We shouldn't run away from the darkness. Yeah. Um, I, I I think I think the the most important part of how we're saying this needs to needs to highlight that without um without your dreams without pushing your dreams into reality like you will not have lived yeah right 
it's better to live through these dark things, you know, and your, your attempt at greatness might almost even cause them. Right. Well, and this could be a message for literally all of humanity too, you know, where this isn't so much about, I mean, I mean, this is definitely about this one moment in time, but you know, this story carries a lot further weight. Um, because I think, I think we are in a time where, and a time where we're trying to stop people from getting hurt. You know, sure. And this is our primary concern in the world. And we've stopped creating anything beautiful. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I, I know Miyazaki's no fan of the current political climate. And, you know, he, he despised movies like Frozen 2 and such that came out. And, <laughs> you know, we're all about not getting hurt. Right. Which, yeah. you know, this might have been kind of like a direct response to that, too. Did this come after come out after Frozen? I believe it did. What what year did Frozen 2 come out? Here, I'll look it up for us. Yeah. But yeah, that would be interesting. Um, it came out 2013. So the same oh, year. same year. Oh, that must have pissed him off then. <laughs> like if he makes a movie about this and there's another movie where yeah. you know, the main character sings Let It Go. Um. <laughs> yeah. Like you have a dream of planes. Let it go. Uh, <laughs> um. No. I. I think that there's a definite. Um, there's there's a definite thing about this film that opposes kind of the current political climate of, you know, trying to. Uh, trying to make sure no one gets hurt, trying to stop like, yeah, it's almost like uh, the way I talk about it with some people, I maybe even said this to you is there's sort of like this undercurrent of what I would call utilitarian thought. Yeah. Um, to the way uh, we roll into the way we view things in the West. And it's even, you know, sort of um, gone to the rest of the world. And it's sort of about, maximizing happiness however you define happiness you know that's very important right and minimizing unhappiness right but if you look at this movie it's hand in hand you know it's like there's an it's an impossible thing to do if you're looking at it from the perspective of this movie because you know in order to have these good things in life in order to have his dream and his true love he necessarily also has to have these dark aspects that he has to deal with you know, right. The fact that his planes are going to kill people, the fact that she's going to die. Well, and I think when you look at the world around us, you kind of see this uh, uh, like vacantness almost where we we've created a, a society and a culture in which, uh, you know, uh, you know, we, we've we've even gotten to the point where you look around and people are so unfamiliar with death um, yeah. that it comes as this like horrible demon to them you know it destroys their entire life um and i think that can only result from essentially uh us forgetting what people in this era knew right and that yeah absolutely absolutely there's a lot to that bringing that back to our initial phone call that's very important um because if you look at what the average person may have believed or so on, they didn't see death as an ending. 
in the past. And now today, I do think what you're getting at is a lot of people are afraid because they're they think of death as a definitive moment. Or, Whereas even in this film, there's this fantastic element to the fact that she's still there, you know, in this dream at the very end. Yeah, she and does disappear something. though, and I think yeah, um, I th- I think uh, majorly what I'm getting at is that um, I think one thing that everyone kind of thought um before that maybe we've kind of lost is that we're all in this together Mm. right and we're all pushing towards something together and it's not going to be fun it's not going to be um it's not going to be lighthearted and jaunty you know yeah but history is a story it's a narrative yeah and we're all the main character right exactly and but but we will be like we will see beauty mm-hmm. right in these things and i think we're we're almost getting to this point now where that's we've we've forgotten what that means and i think the reason why the end of this film is so powerful is because he's essentially showing us what what we're what we don't have now um why we're vacant and that's i think that's why it's so powerful at the end and why you know like i was drawn to tears at the end of this film and like i was sitting in my room in complete silence for 20 minutes after the credits stopped rolling you know um and it's just one of those things where um you know when, when, when you when you're given what we are in our society and such and um like every day does feel vacant because you're basically given um given the layout for how you're supposed to live your life and how um how society's supposed to function and uh it's this uh secular thing right where uh you're kind of just expected to work and uh become part of become a productive member of society utilitarian right again. right well and and uh achieve the american dream or whatever right which is like owning a fucking house yeah. right <laughs> like where where's the beauty in that you know yeah. um why why are like i think after i watch something like this I, I have to come back and ask myself why are people um why are people obsessed with that like that's that's only one step above basic survival right Mm-hmm. Um, it's just sustained basic survival, and as beings, exactly as beings, I feel like we're we're capable of this. We're capable of having dreams and pushing them into well, the world and experiencing love for someone else in that at that level. And you know, well, what you just said, you know, it's one step above basic survival, which is sort of how we even start got on this line of thought, which is people once again sort of running away from the nasty things and trying to get rid of the nasty things and just maximize some sense of happiness, but really it just sort of amounts to comfort and pleasure. Um, and sort of not willing, uh, not willing to go through the dark things, the evil things, uh, for greatness or for love, all these things for dreams. Right. Um, yeah. And just like, Oh, as long as I'm not, you know, as long as I have a good, uh, housing situation and food, you know, Right. Um, well, which I don't, you know, I don't begrudge people, but that is sort of a very small thing to, um, 
have a dream for in terms of your life, you know? Well, and I think as, the, as these aspects grow, you see kind of unhappiness grow as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like you see all these people that are asking themselves, how do I become happy? And I think that's the worst possible question you can ask, right? Because like, it's not about being happy. Yeah. Um, Name a hero who was happy. (laughs) Right. Well, happiness is just a reaction, right? Yeah. Like, and it's also a fleeting moment, you know, you're you're happy for a moment. Yeah. It's not a consistent state of being right. you'd have to be fucking insane to want that. Uh, to be constantly happy right so if it's not happiness what do we want and i think the answer is here right Mm -hmm. like in some in some capacity or other we want to live (laughs) right (laughs) and to live means to strive and suffer and like find beauty and things in the world and you know and dream and yeah and push with your fellow humans and you know find like-minded people and change the world right yeah. even even if the thought police might be after you yeah you know um no it's a yeah it's really a beautiful movie and like i <laughs> <laughs> i think it's uh yeah when when you called me the other night and you were talking to me about um all of this stuff you know uh mm-hmm. about death and purpose and such and um I immediately just thought of this film and I was like, well, we're already doing Miyazaki. You better just switch the movie. <laughs> um, I dude, I think we did it. I think we got, I think we've said everything that needs to be said, man. I think we should end it there. All right. It's well, a place to end it. Yeah. Okay. Well, do you want to say anything? I can cut. That yeah. I mean, out, no, 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 no. Um, no, I just want to say if, uh, you know, every single one of Miyazaki's movies are extremely profound. Mm-hmm. And if if you're someone that really wants to dive into film and really see a filmmaker that pulls off like kind of um, these incredibly lean films that are that are all surrounding an insight. Uh, yeah, you can't go wrong with Miyazaki. Uh just know it's going to be very difficult to pinpoint exactly what his films are about because they are incredibly profound. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't think he's ever made a film without feeling like he needs to make one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Every single film feels at least from an outside perspective, like he felt like it was extremely necessary. Um, yeah, man, we don't have a lot of filmmakers like that these days. No, he's definitely brilliant. He's one of the greats. Yeah. Um, absolutely. What I would also throw out there is uh, this is one of those films to put down on a list to watch when you're older. Yeah. You know, watch it now and then watch it again when you're older and uh, compare notes. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's it. I think All right. we've talked, well, talked about the film. <laughs> Everyone, I guess we'll see you next week. Yeah. Please watch The Wind Rises. All right. See you guys. Hey, Quaid here again. After recording the episode, me and Nick found an interview with Miyazaki. It's from the late 2000s and has a great translation on it. Enjoy. Miyazaki-san, first of all, let me say I'm a huge fan of yours. So thank you so much for um, finding the time to speak with me for the program. They call you the Japanese Disney. Uh, I wonder, how do you feel about that? I'm very happy.
I'm not very happy about it. <laughs> Disney is a producer, but he's not a director. Now, Disney is such a big company. They're very keen to have everything in the world. You obviously have a great fondness for children, but also an ability, it seems, to um, put yourself in their shoes for their age, which is quite remarkable for any adult, I think. Is this something you've, you've always had? As I'm exploring animation with the main character, I recall old memories. I also see my friend's daughters a few times a year when we go to the cottage in the summer. Looking at their facial expressions always teaches me something. All the movements and feeling of the main character are taken from them. However, it wasn't until 1988 that Miyazaki and his studio Ghibli would win widespread recognition with the stunning My Neighbor Totoro. It's the story of two sisters, Mei and Satsuki, who move from the city to the country where they discover a family of warm woodland creatures whom they call Totoros. That scene uh, with the bus stop where they're waiting for their father and the cat bus comes, which is, is one of the most wonderful scenes in, in any animated movie. And what strikes me is you, you rarely see films at that pace, scenes at that pace, and with that kind of um, relaxed feel in, in American animated movies. It seems very unusual. It just happened to be like that. My original plan was much shorter. However, it became longer as we started visualizing the images. In the end, it turned out to be a great scene. It was most fortunate, a mysterious scene made with spacious music and images. In 1997, Miyazaki's Princess Mononoke broke all box office records, reaping an unprecedented $150 million in Japan. This complex and enchanting feature sees Miyazaki exploring man's power struggle in the natural order through the tale of Prince Ashitaka, who needs to find the cure to a wound that is killing him. Mononoke was Studio Ghibli's first export to the US, but failed to score at the box office, perhaps because in the West, we don't expect animated movies to be quite so sophisticated. I didn't expect children to fully understand Princess Mononoke, and was surprised when they did. In fact, it was the adults and critics who were confused.